Thank you for joining us for Financial News. Articles read for this weekly program are selected from financial publications, including Bloomberg News, Forbes, Fortune, CNBC, New York Times, The Washington Post, The Financial Times, and other publications. My name is Michael Amy. This article is posted to Bloomberg. The title, Holding Cash Will Be a Winning Strategy in 2023, Investors Say. Passive funds and ETFs won't completely supplant active managers, but their market share will continue to rise. This by Suzanne Woolley was posted on March 5th, 2023. In 2023, cash is far from trash. That's the verdict of the 404 professional and retail investors who took part in the latest MLIV Pulse survey. Two-thirds of respondents said the cash in their portfolios would bolster rather than drag down their performance in the year ahead. That cash holds such allure says a lot about the unsettled financial and economic environment. Fears of a potential bear market, continued rate hikes by the Federal Reserve, and a looming recession have investors nervous, worried that 2023 could be a reprise of 2022's brutal hit to portfolios. Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. equity strategist Michael Wilson told Bloomberg TV last week that the S&P 500 index could fall around 20 percent due to weak corporate earnings. However, he expects stocks to rally in the short term if Treasury yields and the dollar continue to decline. Against that backdrop, cash looks like a safe haven, particularly with recent yields on short-term Treasury bills high enough to beat the classic 60-40 portfolio of stocks and bonds for the first time since 2001. Even high-yield savings accounts pay savers close to 4% now. We're encouraging people that it's okay to hold cash, that it's not just a lead weight on your ankle weighing you down, said Leo Kelly, Chief Executive Officer at Verdense Capital Advisors. You can get a nice yield, and there will be a lot of volatility in the markets and lots of chances to put that cash to work at attractive levels, he said. Investors also lose ground to inflation by holding cash, said Rachel Elson, a wealth advisor at Paragon Wealth Management. But for clients who have known expenses to save for, like an upcoming wedding or a looming tax bill, it's less painful to be prudent when you can get 3.75% on a savings account from Marcus Goldman Sachs Group Incorporated's Consumer Bank, Elson said. The money that investors do put to work in the markets this year is more likely to go to passive funds that actively manage mutual funds. Only 17% of survey respondents said it's highly likely that an average active large-cap U.S. equity fund will outperform a passive fund tracking the S&P 500 after fees in 2023. When professional investors were asked whether they plan to increase their exposure to active funds, passive funds, and international investments this year, the most popular answer was international exposure, 47%, followed by putting more money in passive funds, 37%, and increasing investment in active funds, 30%. Conversely, retail investors are more likely to put money into passive funds, 46%, followed by international investments, 38%, and actively managed funds, 22%.
While most respondents think stock pickers will continue to lose mark share to passive funds, they don't expect active managers to go extinct in 10 years. Just 25% said they'll cease to exist in the next decade, while the other three quarters believe they'll survive for reasons ranging from outperformance to inertia. Legacy is hard to kill, one respondent wrote. Some investors said active managers' ability to be nimble and hold cash will make them an attractive option during uncertain times. With persistently high rates and less fast money, there will be great opportunities for concentrated, benchmark-agnostic active managers to outperform, wrote one respondent. On a fundamental level, it's human nature to seek above-average returns, another person commented. U.S. stocks ended last week on a high note, driven by speculation that the Fed won't raise interest rates beyond peak levels already priced in. Asian shares rose on Monday, taking the lead from Wall Street, although the rally was tempered by China's modest economic growth target. As investors weigh global risks, the week ahead brings a range of economic data and events for them to consider. In Asia, eyes remain on the National People's Congress in Beijing for any further policy announcements and details that may set the tone for how market-friendly or harsh regulation will be through 2023. The Bank of Japan's policy decision on Friday will be the last under the current governor, Haruhiko Kuroda. Global traders will also look to the U.S. non-farm payrolls report for clues on whether the U.S. economy can handle more rate hikes. Fed Chair Jerome Powell speaks before Senate and House committees. The MLIV Pulse Survey showed 72% of respondents see 10-year bond yields rising in the coming month. This bearish consensus, however, could set markets for disappointment in the event of unexpectedly weak economic data. Again, the title of that, Holding Cash Will Be a Winning Strategy in 2023, Investors Say. This article is posted to CNBC. The title, What is Homebuyer Down Payment Assistance and How Do You Get It? Down Payment Assistance can help you remove one of the main hurdles on your way to home ownership. This was published on Monday, February 27, 2023. It was written by Anna Staples. When you have a goal of buying a home, coming up with enough cash for a down payment can feel overwhelming. Luckily, you might be able to get help in the form of down payment assistance. The down payment assistance programs, or DPAs, offer cash grants and low-cost or no-interest loans to qualified homebuyers. DPAs usually come from government-funded organizations operating at state and local levels, but you can also find similar programs at banks and credit unions. CNBC Select breaks down the type of down payment assistance that may be available to you and how you can qualify. Thousands of down payment programs exist nationwide, most of them tailored for first-time homebuyers. DPAs generally fall under two categories, grants or loans with each category affecting how you qualify for and repay the assistance. First, grants. Perhaps the most desirable option for home buyers, grants are down payment money you don't have to repay. For example, Iowa's first home program 
offers a $2,500 grant to help with down payment assistance and closing costs. Maine Housing's first home loan program can provide $5,000 if you meet the program's requirements. Grants are also available from some banks. Bank of America can give qualified borrowers in certain areas a grant of up to 3% of the home purchase price, up to $10,000, to use toward a down payment through their down payment grant program. With Chase Bank, you can get Chase Select Grant in eligible areas and receive $2,500 or $5,000 that's first applied to lower your interest rate. The rest can go toward fees or your down payment. Then there are loans. Many DPAs are, in fact, second mortgages, meaning you're borrowing for a down payment and might need to repay the loan. Down payment assistance loans are typically very affordable and charge either low or no interest. Some are deferred loans where you only start to repay after 30 years or once you move, sell, or refinance. For example, in Washington State, you may be able to qualify for Home Advantage Down Payment Assistance, a no-interest second mortgage loan with payments deferred for 30 years. The maximum loan amount can be between 3 and 5% of your full mortgage balance, depending on your mortgage type. Some of these loans are also forgivable. Home First Down Payments Assistance Program in New York City offers a forgivable loan of up to $100,000 for a down payment or closing costs. For the loan to be forgiven, you need to use the home as your primary residence for 10 years if you're borrowing $40,000 or less, or 15 years if you're borrowing more. If your state or county doesn't provide down payment assistance loan options that fit your circumstances, see what your local credit unions or banks offer. For instance, if you live in Massachusetts and have served in the military, you might qualify for Operation Welcome Home from Metro Credit Union. The program offers a DPA loan option which covers up to 5% of the purchase price, up to $15,000, at a 2% interest rate. Typically, down payment assistance programs operate on the state, county, or city level. To get started, you might want to research online which programs are available in your area. If you're already working with a lender, you can ask your loan officer about your options. Note, however, that many such programs require you to work with a participating lender. If the lender you currently use isn't enrolled with one of these programs, you would have to switch lenders. If you know from the beginning that you need down payment assistance, you might want to begin the home buying process by searching for potential programs and contacting lenders that work with them. When selecting a program, pay attention to terms, eligibility requirements, and restrictions, which typically include the following. Income limits, credit score requirements, first-time homebuyer requirements, buying in a specified area, purchase price limits, using an approved mortgage lender, using a specific type of mortgage loan, for example, a conforming loan or FHA loan, buying a primary residence and staying there for a certain number of years, and completing an approved home buying education course. With all the DPAs available, there is no guarantee you'll find one right for you. If that's the case, don't worry. You can also look into mortgage programs and lenders that require a low down payment. 
For example, with Ally Bank Mortgage, you might be able to qualify for a home-ready loan with just 3% down. Eligible first-time homebuyers can get a SoFi home loan from SoFi, also with a 3% down payment. Again, the title of that, What is Homebuyer Down Payment Assistance and How Do You Get It? This article is posted to Forbes. Title is, Borrowers Receive Student Loan Forgiveness Approval Emails After Court Greenlights Settlement. This was written by Adam Minsky and posted on March 2, 2023. Borrowers are starting to receive notices approving them for student loan forgiveness under a long-awaited settlement agreement. While student loan news has been dominated this week by the Supreme Court hearing that will determine the fate of President Joe Biden's one-time student debt relief plan, a lesser-known parallel court battle has been playing out over another dispute involving student loan forgiveness. And that dispute was just resolved in favor of borrowers. Here's what you need to know. Last week, a federal district court in California rejected a challenge to a settlement agreement to conclude Sweet versus Cardona, a long-running class action lawsuit brought by borrowers to resolve stalled or rejected borrower defense to repayment applications. The borrower defense program allows borrowers to request student loan discharges and other debt relief if their school misled them or engaged in other illegal conduct uh, conduct to convince them to enroll or remain enrolled in the institution. The borrowers alleged that the Education Department had delayed processing thousands of borrower defense applications for years and then issued arbitrary blanket denials. In November, a federal judge had approved the landmark settlement agreement that would provide $6 billion in federal student loan forgiveness for over 200,000 borrower class members. The class members must have submitted borrower defense applications to the Education Department before June 22, 2022, and also must have attended one of the several dozen schools listed in an exhibit appended to the settlement agreement. Some borrowers could also receive other debt relief, including refunded payments and improvements to associated credit reporting. But before the Education Department could begin implementing the relief, three schools referenced in the settlement agreement, Appendix, sought to intervene in the case and stop the settlement relief from being dispersed to borrowers. The schools claimed that the settlement agreement was unfair and would negatively impact their reputations because of the stigma associated with the case and the nature of the borrower's allegations. Judge William Alsup rejected these arguments in his decision, writing that, quote, Resolution of a lawsuit concerning monumental delay should not be delayed any longer by three intervenor schools who were not parties to the settlement agreement and who were not in the long, hard-fought litigation that preceded it, end quote. The three schools will be allowed to continue their appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, but Judge Elsop allowed the Education Department to begin implementing the settlement agreement relief immediately. This week, the Education Department began notifying Sweet versus Cardona class members that they qualify for student loan forgiveness and other relief. 
You are receiving this letter because you are a member of the class of federal student loan borrowers covered by the recent settlement of the Sweet versus Cardona lawsuit, reads the email. You submitted a borrower defense to repayment discharge application relating to your federal student loans on or before June 22, 2022, and you attended a school listed on Exhibit C of the settlement agreement, it reads. The email goes on to say, pursuant to the Sweet settlement, the Department of Education will do the following. Discharge your federal student loans taken out for your enrollment in the relevant institution. Provide a refund for any payments made to the Department of Education on your relevant federal student loans, including relevant federal student loan debt that you previously paid off. And delete the credit report trade line associated with the discharged loans. Other than verifying contact information, covered borrowers are not required to take any further action, according to the notice. Notably, the notice does not provide a specific timeline for when a borrower can expect to receive student loan forgiveness or other debt relief. However, implementation is expected to be on a rolling basis over a one-year period. The notice tells borrowers, if you have questions about this notice, please call our borrower defense hotline from 8 to 8 Eastern Time on Monday through Friday or from 11 to 5 Eastern Time on Saturday or Sunday at 855-279-6207. The project on predatory student lending the organization representing the class of borrowers in the Sweet versus Cardona case, has also established a detailed informational website where borrowers can get more information and review frequently asked questions. Again, the title of this is Borrowers Receive Student Loan Forgiveness Approval Emails After Court Greenlights Settlement. This article was posted to Fortune Magazine's blog, Crypto, by Jeff John Roberts on March 3rd, 2023. The title is Bitcoin is for Republicans, Ethereum is for Democrats. Greetings from Colorado's capital, where more than 20,000 Ethereum enthusiasts have descended to celebrate ETH Denver. ETH Denver, a multi-day extravaganza dedicated to demos, workshops, and a whole lot of hoopla related to their favorite blockchain. As usual, many of this year's attendees turned up wearing rainbows or outlandish animal costumes, a colorful pageant that felt especially striking given that this year's ETH Denver is taking place at the city's fabled stockyard and rodeo grounds, which is adorned by images of cowboys, Budweiser, and other icons typically associated with Red America. I remarked on the hippie-like vibe, which included a zen zone and an arena full of sleeping bags for 500 Ethereum scholarship attendees to stay overnight to a 50-something crypto industry professional who was himself dressed in a vibrant shirt and hipster glasses. He nodded and observed, Bitcoin is for Republicans, Ethereum is for Democrats. It's hard to disagree. While the hardcore Bitcoin crowd is fixated with hodling and suspicion of the government, the Ethereum set is more given to 
radical experimentation and eccentricity. This is your reader speaking. I should mention that hodling is the concept of buying bitcoins and then holding them. On to the story. I put this characterization to Kevin Owaki, the founder of the open software promulgator Gitcoin, who has just launched Supermodular, a venture studio that aspires to commercialize a wide variety of Ethereum innovations. He described the political labels as very reductionist, but conceded the broad strokes are correct. Bitcoin is about red meat and guns. Ethereum has rainbows and unicorns, Owaki noted. All of this underscores the degree to which crypto culture has grown and become more diverse since the libertarian Satoshi published his famous white paper in 2008 and soon after embedded a warning about central bank profligacy in the first block of Bitcoin. Today, the two most important blockchains have come to embody very different political tribes, both of which offer new and distinct ideas, but also overlap with broader progressive and conservative cultural movements. For the thousands of mostly young people packed into the stockyard building, however, politics was far from their minds. They were instead consumed by the prospects for the next phase of Ethereum, which successfully pulled off a very difficult switch to the environmentally friendly proof-of-stake last year and is on track to introduce a host of other updates that will make the blockchain faster and easier to use. In May, it will be Bitcoin's turn to be the center of the crypto universe when its devotees gather in Miami Beach for an extravaganza of their own. We'll have a dispatch from there, too, but for now it's enough to observe that even after one of the industry's toughest years ever, crypto and its colorful culture are more entrenched than ever. That by Jeff John Roberts, who's attending the ETH conference in Denver, and the title of that is Bitcoin is for Republicans, Ethereum is for Democrats. This article is posted to Bloomberg. The title is Car Debt is Piling Up as More Americans Owe Thousands More Than Vehicles Are Worth. Dealers worry record prices leading to negative equity surge. More consumers could be left without vehicle financing options. This was written by Paige Smith and Michael Sasso, posted on March 1st, 2023. Chris Martin knew he needed a bigger car as the birth of his fourth child approached, but he and his wife were already $14,000 underwater on their two vehicles. So the couple proposed an unusual two-for-one deal with an Atlanta-area auto dealer in 2020, trading in both of their vehicles so they could afford a three-row Ford Explorer. Their total loan, after factoring in negative equity, a service contract, fees, and other costs, ballooned to $66,000 on the $49,000 Explorer. Despite a lot of progress on the debt, he feels uneasy. I don't want to be paying interest on cars that I don't even have anymore, said Martin, a 36-year-old data engineer. The buildup in negative equity, or the amount that debt exceeds a vehicle's value, is rattling consumers and raising alarms within the industry. 
Though it's not unusual for drivers to carry negative equity, some dealers say more people are arriving at their lots up to $10,000 underwater or upside down on their trade-ins. They're buying at still sky-high prices and rolling debt from one car to another and even onto a third. Loans are commonly stretching to seven years. As trade-in values begin to cool each month, more and more consumers will find themselves falling from positive to negative equity, said Ivan Drury, director of insights at auto market researcher Edmonds. Unless American car shoppers break their habit of buying again too soon, we'll see the negative equity tide continue to rise. Even if the U.S. economy avoids a recession this year, consumers will likely struggle to make payments on their auto loans, especially with the Federal Reserve planning to keep raising interest rates. The average new car interest rate rose to 6.9% in January, from 4.3% a year earlier, according to Edmonds. With car prices still elevated, demand high and inventory levels relatively low, Ford Motor Company, General Motors, and other automakers continue to rake in sizable profits. For the typical American, a new car is increasingly out of reach. Today, about 2 out of 13 people are making monthly car payments of $1,000 or more. For many, there is no choice. They have few or no public transportation options and need a car to get to work, bring children to school, and buy groceries. Because these car loans are generally unaffordable at the outset, that means that every month borrowers are getting closer to the financial edge, said Kathleen Engel, a law professor at Suffolk University. The cost of new vehicles has risen 20% since the start of the pandemic, while used vehicles are still up 37% even after cooling in the fall. For a brief period, car owners hit a topsy-turvy market where they could sell some used cars for more than they paid for them. That helped negative equity plummet earlier in the pandemic. But as more consumers deplete savings accumulated during the pandemic, they're falling underwater again. For trade-ins that carry negative equity, the average amount is approaching pre-pandemic levels at $5,500, according to Edmunds data. The surge in prices and prevalence of 84-month loans are fueling concern about among consumer advocates and within the auto industry. Pete Ketsterson is the general manager of a dealership in Falls Church, Virginia. On one side of his lot is the Volvo showroom. On the other side is the Kia showroom. He's much more concerned about the customers shopping for Kias who rely on financing more heavily than he is for the Volvo buyers who he says often pay with cash. It's going to come and it's going to bite us, said Kesterson, referring to negative equity, which he believes will worsen. Now we're selling the cars for so much more and financing for longer at a much higher interest rate. There are some challenges coming down the pike. Negative equity has already bitten Shauna Ballou, a 45-year-old mother of five from Tacoma, Washington, who feels trapped in her Ford Escape. Four years ago, she traded in a Chevy Malibu and bought a six-year-old Escape for around $16,000. 
After including the negative equity on her trade, taxes, and other fees, she financed for more than $25,000 and is paying it off over seven years. She researched the life expectancy of her car, and she's worried she'll wind up owning a car that won't even run and owing on it. I can't even get anyone to refinance me because the value of the car does not add up, said Ballou, who's working two jobs and trying to get her own business off the ground. The upswing in negative equity is on the radar of officials at the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They're closely monitoring it now that the safety net of selling a used car to climb out of debt is disappearing. Consumers may have been less likely to find themselves underwater on car loans because of rising used car prices, said Ryan Kelly, acting auto finance manager at CFPB. That may be changing. To respond to higher vehicle costs, lenders have kept extending the length of auto loans. Companies such as Upgrade Incorporated, which offer loan refinancing, also are tightening standards for who qualifies for financing, a trend they predict will continue if the job market worsens and rates keep climbing. The more likely scenario is the worsening of economic conditions combined with the prospects of a continued decline in car prices, making it harder for consumers to qualify for the car they want, said Renaud Leplanche, Upgrade's co-founder and chief executive officer. For now, even seven-year loans are performing well, said Margaret Rowe, a senior director with Fitch Group Incorporated, who's focused on auto financing and asset-backed securities. But if the prices of cars stay high and lenders keep extending long loan terms, opting to offer them to borrowers with lower credit scores, that could change, she said. In January, severely delinquent auto loans hit their highest rate since 2006, based on Cox Automotive data. One wild card for consumers is the fluctuation in used car values. After a historic climb during the pandemic, values fell 13% from their peaks as of January, but suddenly climbed again in February, according to the Mannheim Used Vehicle Value Index. If they fall further, anyone who bought at the top of the market will fall further into the trap of negative equity. Subprime consumers coming in with negative equity and looking to buy another car are particularly vulnerable, said Todd Nelson, Senior Vice President of Strategic Partnerships at Lightstream, which is part of Truist Bank. They're just continuing to amass debt in a way that's not very financially responsible, Nelson said. For folks in that space, if they can't afford to, they'd be far better off staying in that vehicle. Again, the title of that at Bloomberg, Car Debt is piling up as more Americans owe thousands more than vehicles are worth. You're listening to Financial News, a weekly program with a focus on personal finance, retirement and estate planning, and the global economy. My name is Michael Amy. This article is posted to Forbes, the title... Americans are tipping more and more often. The IRS wants its cut. This was written by Kelly Phillips Herb and posted on March 5th, 2023. 
Thanks to gratuity goosing point of sales terminals, the tip take is on the rise, and now the feds are eyeing that same digital path to collect more of the taxes owed on tip income. Here's the story. The skies in Raleigh, North Carolina, were blue on March 1st with spring-like temperatures of nearly 70 degrees that tempted residents and tourists to stroll the streets of the city's revitalized downtown. Diners and drinkers crowded the Raleigh Times Bar with its throwback decor of old newspaper clippings and photos, contemporary selection of draft, craft, and Belgian brews, and creative bar snacks like bacon-wrapped goat cheese-stuffed figs. Brennan Whitley, 38, manned the bar, took orders at the indoor tables, and even filled in service gaps at the most in-demand outdoor seating. But not everyone rewarded his hustle and cheerfully polite demeanor, One couple ran up an $80 tab and left just a $2 tip. Naturally, he didn't object, but later he speculated that the folks who stiffed him may not have known his base pay is the same as when he started working at restaurants 20 years ago, $2.13 an hour. Or maybe they were among those Americans who are fed up with the growing expectation that they should tip generously for everything, from takeout orders and even groceries, to bad service to the good service provided by waiters like Whitley, who have traditionally survived on paltry hourly pay and generous tips. That $2.13 an hour Whitley makes was set by the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938, Employers, in theory, must make up the difference if a worker's tips don't take him to the regular federal minimum wage of seven twenty-five an hour, which hasn't increased since 2009, even as the cost of living has risen 42%. The $2.13 versus $7.25 federal minimum for tipped workers is still used by 13 states, including North Carolina. Others have enacted their own higher minimums, but only seven states currently require that all tipped employees get the same hourly minimum up front from their employers as other workers. The net result, the Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates, the nation's two million waiters and waitresses had median earnings in 2021 of $12.50 an hour, with only 10% pulling in more than $46,000 a year. During the early days of the pandemic, awareness of tough working conditions and low pay for service workers prompted Americans to leave higher tips, a trend that surveys suggest has been somewhat offset by inflation-stretched customers now scaling back on the percent they leave, if not given higher prices, the total dollars. Whitley, for his part, says he's typically getting around 20% now, but the same as before COVID-19, lower than earlier in the pandemic. A more lasting and significant change, a broader group of service workers are now expecting tips as cash registers and easily ignored tip jars have been replaced by point-of-sale touch screens. It could be an iPad, a phone, or a dedicated terminal that conspicuously asks customers if they want to tip and present a menu of percentages. Toast 
a digital POS platform or point of sale platform serving restaurants, reports that in the last quarter of 2022, a tip was included on 48% of credit card or digital payment transactions at fast food restaurants on its platform, up from 37% of payments at such establishments that included a tip at the start of 2020. As those numbers suggest, not all consumers are on board with what's known as tip creep, Indeed, when Starbucks began rolling out a new screen feature last year that asked those paying by credit card if they want to tip a dollar, two dollars, or five dollars, or leave no tip, and require an answer before a transaction goes through, the coffee chain was roasted on TikTok and other social media. Notably, while Starbucks workers may be underpaid, they are not paid a sub-minimum wage that many waiters at full-service restaurants are. Starbucks raised its minimum pay to $15 an hour last summer. It's not just Starbucks. We're being asked to tip more. We're being asked to tip more aggressively. And it's now the default, says Michael von Massau, who studies the economics of restaurant and retail food demand as an associate professor at the University of Guelph in Canada. He notes that the digital asks are no longer limited to traditional personal service industries. They now include everything from grocery store screens asking for gratuities at checkout to mechanics using payment programs that suggest tips on top of already substantial repair bills. Digital prompts are not only expanding what services consumers tip for, but also how much In a new tipping culture survey of 2,000 Americans for Forbes Advisor, 73% said they tip at least 11% more when they tip digitally, with the digital tip bonus averaging nearly 15%. But a backlash is building, with consumers increasingly opting out von Massau cautions. Before the pandemic, a study asked Canadians, do you like tipping under half? 42% answered they could do without it. In a more recent survey, 67% said they would prefer to move away from tipping. Psychological research on nudging suggests nudging works, explains von Massau, but if we feel like we're being nudged too hard, we start to push back. One intriguing study that illustrates that point comes from Kwabina Donker, an assistant professor of marketing at the Stanford Graduate School of Business who grew up in Ghana and drove a New York City yellow cab for four years while earning his economics degree from Hunter College. For his Ph.D. thesis at University of California, Berkeley, and in a subsequent paper, Donker analyzed the trade-off between personal choice, that is, choosing your own tip, and norm conformity, or choosing from a menu of tipping options, by sampling a billion Big Apple taxi rides taken between 2010 and 2018. The tip menu, in this case are combination screens and card swipe machines you use at the end of the ride when paying with a credit or debit card. Passengers can choose one of the menu options manually, key in a different amount, including no tip, or provide a separate cash tip. More than 97% of riders who swipe their cards for the ride add a tip on the screen. Yep, that's norm conformity. 
Uber riders who tip from the privacy of their own phones and after exiting a car are far less likely to tip. Significantly, until mid-2017, Uber didn't have a tipping option on its app, so the norm there is different. In 2011, one of the two providers of New York City cab screens raised the default tips shown from 15, 20, 25 to 20, 25, 30 percent. After the percentages went up, Donker found the share of people opting for a default declined from 58% to 47%, but the average tip climbed from 17.45% to 18.84%. In other words, while more riders made a personal choice, thanks to all those other norm followers taking their cues from the screen, the average driver's take still rose. When the lowest default was raised from 15% to 20%, the share of passengers who tipped exactly 15% dropped by 87%, from 30% to 4%. Just as dramatically, when a top default of 30% was added to the screen, the share of riders opting to be that generous jumped 800%, from 0.5% to 4%. Not surprisingly, given that default tips are fixed percentages of the fare, Donker also found that the higher the fare, the more likely a rider was to pick their own lower tip. In other words, to heck with the norms and convenience of the default, this is getting too expensive. That should be good news for all those workers at coffee and sandwich shops whose point-of-sale screens now suggest relatively high tips percentage-wise on smallish tabs, but Donker's research also raises a caution. At some level of suggested tip, 40% in his study, writers rebelled en masse and abandoned the default. Of course, Donker isn't the only study on tipping norms. The IRS has, for years, compiled tipping data to determine what income should look like from tipped employees, depending on a variety of factors, including not only industry and geography, but also the days of the week and hours worked. Tips are subject to income and payroll, that is, Social Security and Medicare taxes. Employees are supposed to report all their tips to their employer, who can then withhold the proper tax and pay the employer's share of payroll taxes. But compliance has always been low, particularly since so many tips have traditionally been paid in cash. In its tax gap studies, the IRS estimates that it gets 99% of what's due on regular wages, where taxes are withheld and reported to both the IRS and the taxpayer on a W-2 but just 55% of what is owed on tips, the same percentage it figures it collects from self-employed sole proprietors. The IRS can, relying on those industry norms, typically match a worker's anticipated tip income with reported income. If the IRS audits a tipped worker and finds they've underreported, it can demand the employee pay all sorts of back taxes and that the employer pony up its share of uncollected payroll taxes, too. But with the IRS auditing fewer than 700,000 of the 150 million individual tax returns filed each year, that's neither practical nor politically popular. 
Even the Biden administration, which has won billions extra for enforcement, says none of that money will be used to step up audits on those earning less than $400,000. The alternative to auditing every waiter? Over the last three decades, the IRS has launched a series of programs that encourage employers to voluntarily calculate, report, and collect taxes on a certain level of tips in exchange for protection from tip audits for themselves and their tipped employees. Except that's not working great either. A 2018 study by the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration estimated 30% of employers with TIP agreements in place were underreporting. Tens of billions in additional taxes are at stake. TIGTA notes that the IRS itself estimated in 2006 10% of the individual tax gap comes from underreported TIPs. Now the IRS wants to get in on the point-of-sale tipping action, too, hopes to modernize its data collection and more effectively shift the burden for reporting tips to employers by using point-of-sale, time and attendance systems, and electronic payment data collected by employers. A new service industry tip compliance agreement program the IRS proposed last month would replace three older voluntary employer programs. To participate, employers would have to use a POS system to record all sales subject to tipping, and that system would have to accept the same form of electronic payment for tips as it does for sales. The employer would then calculate and report to the IRS on a W-2 each worker's minimum tips by including all electronic paid tips and an estimate of cash tips on other sales. The IRS concedes cash tips should be estimated at a lower average rate and that a stiffing discount must be applied for those who don't tip at all. The new program would not require any tax reporting commitment from individual employees. In fact, they would not even have to sign participation agreements or otherwise agree to be monitored for compliance by their employers, as they must under the current program being replaced. And employees wouldn't get protection from audits. Legally, they'd be responsible for reporting all tips, not just those included on their W-2s. But tipped workers who now report all or most all of their tips wouldn't have to worry about being hit with a big bill at tax time. Instead, if their employers participated in the new program, the taxes on their calculated minimum tips would be withheld during the year. Plus, the IRS would have even less reason to go after those who shave a little if the minimums reported on those W-2s were closer to the truth. That truth was easy to keep hidden in the shadows when tipping relied mostly on cash. Now, one of the very things helping drive the push for more tips, technology, and the digital trail it leaves, is also what the IRS hopes to use to capture its share. Again, the title of that posted to Forbes, Americans are tipping more and more often. The IRS wants its cut. This article is posted to the Fortune blog, Crypto Proof of State by Leo Schwartz, was posted on March 1st, 2023. The title, The Court Case 
that could determine the future of crypto. On Tuesday morning, at an office party a few blocks from the White House, the crypto firm Grayscale laid out a spread of pastries and coffee. In a week's time, Grayscale would be arguing before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals as one of the industry's companies daring or foolhardy enough to challenge the Securities and Exchange Commission. Today it was facing a slightly easier crowd of under-caffeinated reporters. Grayscale is part of Barry Silbert's Digital Currency Group, which includes the bankrupt lender Genesis and the Polk prize-winning Coindesk, now reportedly up for sale. Despite the crypto empire's economic woes, it still has deep pockets. That was evident in the breakfast star attendee, the advocate who would be representing Grayscale before the court, Don Verrilli, Jr., As the former Solicitor General for President Barack Obama, Verrilli has argued some of the nation's landmark cases before the Supreme Court, from marriage equality to the Affordable Care Act. The grayscale lawsuit is far less glamorous, although some in the crypto industry would argue it is of comparable importance. The details of the case would far exceed this column's word count, but here's the short version. Grayscale manages the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, a behemoth holding nearly $15 billion in assets that, when it launched back in 2013, represented one of the first financial vehicles for investors that gets exposure to Bitcoin without buying it directly. Because of quirks of security law, investors cannot redeem their shares in the trust back to Bitcoin, which has led to fluctuations in its share price relative to the amount of Bitcoin it holds. As has been extensively discussed, the arbitrage opportunities made the fortunes of firms such as the crypto hedge fund Three Arrows Capital and led to their downfall. Grayscale would prefer to convert its trust into a more sensible vehicle, an exchange-traded fund, or ETF, that tracks the current price of Bitcoin or the spot market. The SEC has been resistant to the idea. Although crypto favorite agency has approved ETFs based on the Bitcoin futures market, which the SEC argues is regulated by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, it has denied all applications for spot market ETFs because, you know, the crypto exchanges selling Bitcoin are unregulated and need to come in and register. To put it as simply as possible, the SEC is arguing that the spot Bitcoin market is still unregulated and subject to fraud and manipulation. Grayscale is arguing that the SEC is being arbitrary and capricious in approving futures Bitcoin ETFs and not spot-based ETFs because they are both priced from the same underlying markets. Before we get too into the weeds with the financial jargon, here's the upshot. Grayscale believes that if the SEC approved a spot Bitcoin ETF, it would unlock billions for investors, possibly save the fate of its parent company, Digital Currency Group, and reverse the fortunes of the industry by allowing investors to turn to regulated financial instruments rather than, say, an offshore's exchange based in the Bahamas. To hear Verrilli describe it, the case is open and shut. 
although he admits he has no background in crypto before his involvement with Grayscale, Verley insists that the case is more about SEC overreach than any blockchain-related particularities. Courts recognize that the agencies have expertise, but they don't have a blank check, he said. Whether the panel of three D.C. Circuit judges agrees on March 7th remains to be seen, and there is a good chance the lawsuit could become the first crypto case to make it to the Supreme Court. If it does, Verily will feel right at home. And the title of that, posted to Fortune's Crypto Proof of State by Leo Schwartz blog, is the court case that could determine the future of crypto. This article is posted to Fortune Magazine's blog titled Crypto by Jeff John Roberts and was posted on February 24th, 2023. The title is NFTs are being underestimated again. Here's the article. Spotify is using NFTs to curate playlists. A liquidator is selling NFTs to recover losses at a bankrupt hedge fund. And a new NFT marketplace called Blur, B-L-U-R, has come out of nowhere to take the crown of longtime top dog OpenSea. All of this occurred in the last week or so. I could go on, including on how big-time gaming execs are raising big sums for NFT-based video games, but I think you get the point. Far from disappearing as a fad, as many predicted, non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, are becoming more ubiquitous than ever. As Axios noted in a smart newsletter last week, when headlines declare death, it pays to check the data. What Axios found is that NFTs are still racking up $500 million in monthly sales volumes, a far cry from the $4 billion figure that occurred at the height of the early 2022 bubble, but still nothing to sneeze at. And for a longer perspective, I recall reporting on the popping of an earlier NFT bubble in 2018, during which a primitive collectible called a Crypto Kitty had sold for the then unfathomable amount of $100,000. Today, that figure is below the so-called floor price for any of the 10,000 critters in the Bored Apes collection. Well, all this is a testament to the enduring interest in NFTs, whose value stems from the fact that they provide unique ownership of a digital artifact stamped on a blockchain. I'm more intrigued by what comes next. I predict that we are on the cusp of a design breakthrough as companies and crypto wallet makers develop an interface that makes using NFTs as intuitive as pulling up an airline boarding pass with your phone. Meanwhile, the speculative market for NFTs has been turbocharged thanks to a new tactic popularized by Blur called floor sweeping, which entails buying batches of the lowest-priced NFT in a given collection. All of this is to say that despite the hype and obnoxious culture associated with some elements of the NFT world, the underlying token technology is here to stay. Thank you for joining us today for Financial News. My name is Michael Amy. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at 
www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.